We can bumble along as we're bumbling along at the moment, and there is a risk of that happening. But all that will do is not sustainable in the longer term because we'll just become more of a fractured digital economy than we already are. What impact does the pandemic have on the global trading system? What role will trade play in the global recovery and global economy of the future? After COVID-19, what steps are needed to make the trading system more sustainable and more inclusive? These are some of the questions tackled by the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Kortevech of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, a series of podcast conversations with leading thinkers on the future of international trade. My name is Rem Kortevech. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands, and today we're talking about digital transformation, standards, taxation, and global governance. Now, digital trade is truly one of the most exciting areas of international trade policy today. If globalization is happening anywhere in the global economy, it surely must be here. But there are also real challenges. Digital trade is an area for new players, new opportunities, new sources of competitive advantage, but also, should we forget, new security concerns. And all this means there is also a need for new rules of the road. And we hope to better understand how governance of digital trade is developing, focusing particularly on the issue of digital standard setting and rulemaking. And in this podcast conversation, to help make sense of this all, I'm, I'm joined by a fantastic panel of experts. From Brussels, I'm joined by Eric van der Marel. Eric is a senior economist at the European Center for International Political Economy. He's an associate professor at the Université Libre de Bruxelles and consultant economist at the World Bank. His areas of expertise are in digital trade, services trade, cross-border data flows, all the stuff we're going to be talking about today. And among his most recent publications are two which I'd particularly like to flag. It's one is called Regulating the Globalization of Data, Which Model Works Best?, and secondly, taxing digital services, compensating for the loss of competitiveness. Looking forward to hearing from Eric. From Washington, I'm joined by Kellyanne Shaw. Kellyanne is former deputy assistant to the president for international economic affairs and deputy director of the National Economic Council. She was closely involved in major U.S. trade negotiations, including USMCA and the U.S.-China Phase One Agreement. Previously, Kellyanne was negotiator at the G7, G20, and APAC, and she led the U.S.-UK Economic Working Group. She was also Republican Trade Counsel in the U.S. Congress Ways and Means Committee. She worked as Assistant General Counsel for USTR. Let it be clear, she has a fantastic depth of expertise in the realm of international trade. Currently, she's a partner at Hogan Lovells. And finally, we're joined by Chris Southworth from London. Chris is Secretary General at the International Chamber of Commerce United Kingdom. Since 2015, he has been closely involved in shaping UK thinking on trade matters. Prior to this, Chris was Executive Director for Global Partnerships at the British Chambers of Commerce. He's also the head of the International Chambers of Commerce Unit at UKTI, a government body in the UK working on trade and investment and a senior policy advisor to a leading member of the House of Lords. Now, hello to you all. Let's get right started. Let's take a look at digital regulation in a bit more detail. Eric, you've been publishing on this for quite some time. Can you start us off and kind of share with us why is digital regulation and rulemaking such a hot topic at the moment? Yeah, so there are various reasons, but one uh, in particular is that there is a lot of more new kind of trade. And that is trade that we sort of did not imagine, what is it, like 10 or 15 years ago. 
And that is, of course, digital trade or digital services trade. And that has been massively increasing over the last, well, what is it, like 15 years. And that is new. And that is something that is, I mean, entirely new markets have been created that we did not sort of know uh, 20 years ago. And not only because it is new um, or that they did not exist or 10, 10, 20 years ago, it uh, forms a regulatory challenge. Also because these are entirely different kind of what I would call intangible, invisible stuff. And that sort of brings along certain non-economic concerns, as I would call them. And that's a sort of a nice word that we always use in economic or economics. Because these non-economic concerns go sort of deeper behind the border when we trade this kind of invisible, intangible stuff in digital markets or digital services markets. And that's why it's so difficult. So it's new, but it's also sort of structurally something different what we trade nowadays, these digital services. And that brings along regulatory challenges because of these two factors. And then, of course, I mean, we touch upon security, we touch upon like, you know, the, the issue of data, for instance, like along the papers, three data models. And that's just a lot more sensitive for governments than in the world of trading goods or then trading a bottle, for example, or trading clothes or trading something else. Sure, we have standards in there, but the non-economic concerns were a lot less straightforward and big than we see now in that new kind of trade that is going on. So, so let's look at those regulatory challenges a little bit. In, in that paper I referenced, you, you mentioned three main regulatory models. You have a US, a European, and a Chinese model to regulate digital services trade. What are the main three main differences between those, those three and why? And why does that matter? So the three differences is very simple. So you have, a, you have three models that are based along three larger markets in the world economy. And that is, I mean, not a surprise because we know that these digital services market, they, they roll on skill, basically. Everybody's talking about you need to have skill in terms of having these markets. Now, for European Union, it's a little bit more difficult because they are comprised. I mean, their large market is comprised of smaller economies, but we get to that, I guess, perhaps a little bit later. But then you have the US model is a big market, and that is an open kind of data model where there is, by sort of its construction, no regulation on the localization of data, to put it simply. You have, an, at the other extreme, an entirely different model that is also centered around a large market, China, where things are a little bit more stricter, if not very strict. So they do have these kind of localization policies. The free flow of data is not a given. And so it is a lot more regulated and a lot more stricter regulated. And then you have a third model that is the EU model that is somehow somewhere in between. And I think the word there that applies is conditionality. So mobility of data, cross-border data flows is possible on the condition that you fulfill certain criteria in your domestic sort of law, right? So, and then that can flow with non-EU countries. So those are the three main differences. Why is it important, if I can elaborate a little bit on that? I think that revolves around sort of an, a nice sort of word that we always use in trade economics, that is trade costs. And that is a very unsexy word. But at the same time, it is incredibly important because as an economist, but also I think as businesses like Chris would I think confirm, you would like these costs being, the trade costs being very low because that stimulates trade. Now, that stimulated trade like in goods, but at lower cost, even, I mean, that, that becomes even more important in services. Why? Because we know from research that the value added that is carried along with a service is a lot higher than in goods, right? So this, the new stuff that we trade is a lot more worth, I would say. So that's why it's important. But there is a second reason for why these trade costs are so important to being kept low, and that has to do with the future of trade. So a lot of that digital services market, I mean, if we extrapolate all these sort of the dynamic stuff that is going on in these markets, you know, people are talking about artificial intelligence, like the Internet of Things. And so these are, you know, new technologies that are associated with these di digital services markets. And that is, I mean, a lot of future trade will be revolved around that. And so those things also become more and more tradable in the future. And these 
kind of new things are associated with even bigger sort of benefits, right? So bigger sort of gains from trade that you'll see in the future, but also bigger non, again, these non-economic concerns that are attached. And so, you know, as, as, as sort of a country, you would like these, these, or across these three models, you would like to have the frictions being as low as possible, of course, to, to come to a sort of a common ground. That's my last point. And if you would set these three models next to each other, you would have three different models, that's true, but you would have one model that is completely different, but also fairly big as a country, and that is the China one. So it becomes also for political reasons very important to keep these trade costs very low across the EU and the US, I would say. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, Ke- Kellyanne, Eric mentions that in some respects, the, the, the future of international trade is going to be much more digitalized. And so the rules that are set right now will also have a huge impact simply in the way also more uh, brick and mortar stuff is being traded. From a US perspective, how should we see this regulatory challenge or these three models interacting? Is this really something that if we don't get it right now, it's going to have a, create a lot of problems, a lot of friction down the road? Or can we simply accept having three different regulatory blocks emerge? Yeah, well, we may have to uh, accept that reality at some point, but it makes it more challenging for a, a number of reasons. And Eric mentioned some. You know, there's obviously a, a huge commercial reason to seek harmonization between the three blocks. It is easier for companies to do business um, if they don't have to worry about trying to adapt to three different overlapping and sometimes very disparate standards. At the same time, though, there are other considerations. So there are technical considerations. There are also national security and values-based considerations. So when you're talking about the digital economy, it is very different than other types of goods and services trade where you're, you know, sending widgets back and forth or talking about agricultural products or or whatever the more traditional uh, focus of trade has been. Um, Because there is a a brewing values war when it comes to issues like privacy and censorship and the role and hand of government in selecting winners and losers um, on various platforms and, and and other types of uh, commercial internet activities. So from that perspective, um, there are three different systems. I, I, I do sort of see the world going in that direction. But to the extent that we can harmonize among like-minded countries, national security allies, I, I actually think that that is the direction it's taking. So while we're fighting for standards in, in the trade arenas, and um, I'd love to talk a bit more when we get to it about um, trade negotiations and digital trade agreements and the right forum to negotiate these new rules and provisions, we're also tying in some of the more national security and strategic competition aspects of um, the, the debate. Great. And Chris, how concerned is, is business that these different models exist now? Uh, I mean, hopefully we're going to get to a, a place where some degree of harmonization can take place, can, can, can occur. But given where we are right now, and we see this competition between models emerging, what does that do to, to, to businesses? Well, I, I think the, the, the first thing to point out here is this is it's multi-layered, isn't it? You know, we're moving into a, a new world in terms of future trade that has political dimensions in terms of different blocks having different philosophies, different values, uh, different ways of doing things versus the sort of economics and the, and the, the sort of trade for, for business. And then I, I wouldn't discount the fact that we talk about three blocks, China, EU, US, and obviously those are the big power brokers. But we shouldn't discount the fact that there are other parts of the world where none of those models work. So it doesn't work for Africa. It doesn't work for most of the developing world, actually, any one of those models. So from a business point of view, life is pretty simple in terms of asks. We just want one model that operates under common standards, not in a place where we have to choose networks, where hardware, software doesn't talk to each other, because we're coming from a past that's that's incredibly antiquated and those people who are not involved in, in the operational side of trade don't often understand that. You know, our trade environment doesn't operate like our consumer environment. In our consumer world, most things talk to each other, hardware, software, phones, TVs, it all kind of talks to each other. In trade, it doesn't. It's totally fragmented, very, very old-fashioned in terms of operating on old laws, very paper-based heavy. So businesses, all we want really is to you know, harmonize our legal frameworks, standardize operations like we have done in our consumer world with you know, Apple and Microsoft and, 
you know, all these different systems that we, we've had in the past and build a, build a, a model that, it, that allows businesses in all parts of the world to participate because that's the sort of social environmental aspect to this. This is a, a huge opportunity to strip away inefficiencies, allow more SMEs particularly to come and participate in trade and then in the current context to drive that economic recovery out of the back of COVID. Because Chris, what, what's the type of friction that businesses are now simply encountering? Well, if, if you look on a, a very practical level, so we, we just recently published the business case to digitize what are called documents of title. Those are sort of commercial documents that relate to the possession of goods, bills of exchange, bills of lading, promissory notes, those sorts of documents. That exercise, just digitizing those documents is worth 250 billion pounds to the UK economy alone. So you imagine that if we digitize those globally, because in most parts of the world, they have to operate on paper, the scale of the value of that exercise. And what, and what that acts as is an enormous drag. Everyone has to operate in paper because these documents by law have to operate in paper. So you remove that legal barrier, technology can flood into the market. The technology is there. It can flood into the market. You can strip out 220 billion pounds of inefficiencies in the private sector You can tackle half the trade finance gap, 1 billion in the UK, and you can pump in 25 billion pounds of fresh SME trade growth. You know, to any government looking in the current context, that's got to be an attractive proposition. And and Kellyanne, from a US point of view, or actually, I mean, you've been very closely involved in shaping US US trade policy. I'm sure you've also looked at this digital bit what, why, what's preventing the U.S. and the EU from moving closer together? I mean, it, 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 it seems pretty straightforward what Chris is saying. Just have one system good for everyone. You should expect like-minded countries or blocks like the EU and the U.S. to see eye to eye. What's, what's the problem? Yeah, well, it, it, it depends on uh, where you start from, right, in, in terms of where you're able to go. I, you know, I, I, digital issues are, are very interesting when it comes to transatlantic uh, relations because it is not so simple. The United States, um, as Eric spelled out, has a very uh, open tradition. We have a very different philosophy when it comes to the way we want to organize our economy and our digital rules. Europe, uh, focus uh, the focus on privacy, um, the desire to build up its own digital economy, the digital services market, um, their attitude towards digital services taxes. All of these things have actually added to quite a a significant rift between the United States and Europe. And so while we are able to, um, as friends and allies, cooperate on a whole host of issues, there seems to be a a lot to overcome here. Um, So from that perspective, it is quite challenging. You know, where there might be more appetite for cooperation is actually between the United States and the United Kingdom. Um, just given that the, the UK is now um, situated a bit differently in terms of its relationship to Europe, um, there seems to be at least a, a, some opportunity to cooperate on those issues. I, I do think there's certainly desire. Um, you saw when President Biden was in Europe, they set up the, the Trade and Technology Council. Um, it, it's a huge priority to work through these issues. Also, what's happening at the OECD negotiations on, on taxes. Um, but there's a long way to go. And I think that it is certainly a medium to long-term prospect and not something that is going to be hard harvest in the short term. And Eric, is the recent agreement on digital services tax, is that a step in the right direction? I mean, should we see it in that respect or is it just um, kind of an, an illusion? Will some of the fundamental problems that Kellyanne mentioned remain between the US and the EU? Um, no, I think, I mean, there is, as Kelly said, there is a long tradition of differences in regulatory approaches because there are two different economies and two different Cultures. I mean, Kelly mentioned it as well, but privacy is something very, very European. It's a fundamental right. And so, you know, the regulatory model on which, you know, that sort of data, but also other regulatory restrictions are built on are are in large part stemming from these, well, in this case, privacy, but what I just before called like non-economic stuff, you know, so political stuff. And in terms of the DST, I mean, that needs to be seen in the context of the OECD talks that is about international taxation. And so then, you know, other countries would hope, and particularly the US then, of course, would hope that, you know, the EU would sort of kind of remove these DSTs. But, you know, some other 
actors in the European field say that that would not necessarily be the case. And from what I understand is that this is a hard issue for the US. They want to have this removed. And so, I mean, if the US or if the EU then sticks to these digital services tax in one form or another, so not the, the what I would call the four or five countries, the DST four or five, or you know what we call that in the paper. I mean, if that sort of broadened out at the, at the at the more European level, I mean, again, that would form another you know factor of frictions. I would say. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're going to continue talking about digital transformation, standards, taxation, and governance with Eric van der Marel, Kellyanne Shaw, and Chris Southworth. At a time of sluggish and uneven global growth, when geopolitics and the pandemic are stressing the rules-based global system, conversations about international trade and its contribution to global prosperity have never been more important. If you would like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2021. This series is brought to you by AIG and its partners, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendal Institute, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, the Jack Delors Institute, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Brittlesman Stiftung is a knowledge partner of the series. We're back from our break. We're going to continue our conversation on digital transformation, standards, taxation, and global governance with Chris Southworth, Kellyanne Shaw, and Eric van der Marel. And then there's the China dimension, because certainly there's now a transatlantic consensus to need to address some of the, the, the trade turbulence involved with, uh, with dealing with, with China. There's the values element. What all three of you are actually suggesting is that that may not be enough for the transatlantic partners to come to some sort of harmonization. Are we then not being um, very unstrategic about digital regulation? Because if the end result is that we end up with three different blocks, instead of growing transatlantic harmonization that's then also able to nudge China in the right direction, I mean, it seems that that would be a lot more, a lot more straightforward. So I, I, I guess the question is, I mean, Kellyanne, you mentioned that you want to talk a little bit about, okay, how do you negotiate this? Well, how, how should both sides of the transatlantic negotiate this? Well, I, I certainly think having the goal of greater harmonization and a united front is, you know, a win in and of itself. And and certainly both sides can make progress um, by, you know, tackling issues, the low hanging fruit first and sort of work your way through. But, you know, it's, it's a challenge because commercial interests and national security interests don't always line up. So while from a national security perspective, you can say, absolutely, we need to cooperate. We need to present a united front against China. The commercial realities and some of the regulatory realities make that, if not impossible, incredibly challenging to do. Um, but there are negotiations happening um, in multiple forums. There's obviously the, the talks happening at the World Trade Organization. The G7 and the G20 are working on these issues. They're being discussed in the OECD. Um, so there are a number of forums where European and, and uh, U.S. leaders and policymakers are getting together to discuss this. And now you have this new council where hopefully they will make some progress. Um, they've set up 10 different working groups and they'll sort of work their way through. Um, this but is it, the it, it is Transatlantic Tech Tech and econ Economy yeah, the, Council, right? The Trade and Technology Council. That's and, Yep, exactly. And so they have, you know, three different goals. One is to establish global standards on emerging technology. Two, to promote democratic values online. And three, to find ways for the U.S. and EU to collaborate on uh, what they call cutting-edge research and development. And they've set up 10 different working groups to march through um, each of those three larger goals. So, you know, hopefully they'll make progress. They're just getting started now, so we don't actually know where it's going to go. Um, but these issues are not new. And, and there are longstanding differences um, between uh, both the EU and the United States. So that's why I, I look to the UK first as I think sort of the the um, the prime target from a US perspective in terms of trying to at least make some ground. And, you know, maybe the UK will help us bridge the gaps. 
Yeah, the problem I see here, and then I want to hear from Chris, but the problem I see here is that if the UK and the US come up with a deal, then the EU will simply say, okay, the UK is sort of switched sides and joined the US regulatory model. It doesn't necessarily push the Europeans to to want to move closer to the US. Uh, I, I guess, Chris, I mean, I'm interested to hear what what folks in London are saying about this, but also what what does business think about this? Does business have time to wait for for these negotiations in this council to to develop? Are there are there steps that business is taking it taking itself? I mean, particularly one of the areas we haven't talked about is how big tech is is an entity and a regulator of itself in 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 the digital space. Well, I mean, there's there's an element of all of this where. There's, um, I think, some pretty fundamental questions about the way we govern digital trade. You know, we're sort of almost trying to govern digital trade through antiquated structures like free trade agreements, uh, multilateral trade agreements, as we always have. And then that structure isn't designed for digital trade. You know, the WTO rulebook is 23 years old. It was last updated in 1998. At the same year, Google was founded in a bedroom. You know, you know, industry is, is so far out in front of governments at the moment in terms of technology and advancement that we've got a bit of a problem that when you put digital trade into a sort of typical trade structural negotiation, it, it, it doesn't fit very well when we need a really agile, dynamic conversation. So there's some good examples of this between, you know, London, the city and, and New York, actually, on financial services. There's a very, very dynamic dialogue going on between those two cities that allows the flow of money between transatlantic on a scale that doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. You know, so digital trade, I think, needs to sort of move more into these sort of flexible spaces. To China first, I think, you know, what we need is a mature, grown-up conversation between all the parties here, including China. The idea that the, the one side of the world gangs up against China and that's going to be the answer, that's just not going to be a sustainable solution in the medium, short or long term. You know, what we need is a, a sort of a way of working that accommodates different approaches because there are different philosophies to this as much as there are different sort of, you know, practicalities to it. So we need a grown-up, mature conversation between the three parties. But I think that the middle economies, which U UK is now part of, Japan, Australia, UK, Singapore, these kind of groups, I think that's, in a way, the more interesting group because it's going to be interesting how much pressure can they apply through G7, G20 and other forums to help bridge the gap, to broker the conversation, to come to common solutions, to bring the big parties to the table, to say this is not working for us and it's not working for the rest of the world either. How do we get to that sort of common ground? But I think, you know, when it comes to the UK, the current position when it comes to digital trade is that the UK doesn't want to have an early harvest. And so it's tied the digital economy conversation to the FTA conversation, the free trade agreement conversation with the US. And we, all, we know that that's kind of parked in the long grass for quite some time. Whereas industry just wants solutions tomorrow. The economic recovery demands solutions tomorrow. We know the evidence points to solutions tomorrow. We can't wait for two, three years while the politicians figure out when in the political time is to sit down. We just need to sit down, do the deal with the US's I don't think, I think it would be an easy thing to do to get a digital economy agreement. We have such strong alignment between both economies. It's a political decision at the end of the day, but we've got a job to do to make the case and persuade the politicians that the two things can happen in parallel, but the digital economy side, I think, needs to happen now to, to enable us then to, to drive uh, the recovery and, and bring more companies into the system and so on and so forth while we will figure out the politics over the short to medium term. And do, does the WTO have a role here? Absolutely, 100%. I mean, I, I don't think we're going to see an e-commerce agreement probably before 2023, but that e-commerce agreement will never be high enough in terms of standards and quality for the UK, US, for instance, nor the UK, Japan or UK, Singapore. So, you know, the, the job in, in the WTO is to get that 1998 rule book modernized as far as we possibly can to bring in as many countries as we possibly can in the world to get common standards, in other words, up to a higher standard, and then use the bilateral conversations and, and digital economy dialogues to then go to the level that we all know we need to go to as, as more sophisticated digital economies. 
I want to pause on this issue of, of who is able to move the conversation on regulatory convergence in the right direction. And it seems like, Chris, you have you 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 hit the nail on the head that if we rely on the three big economic powers to move, that's going to be really difficult because just look at TTIP, for instance, regulatory convergence and regulatory harmonization didn't happen there. Why should we expect it to happen on such a sensitive issue as digital trade? And it seems to me like regulatory convergence really goes almost to the core of the economic system. We see this also very clearly in the EU. There's this belief very strongly in the Brussels effect and that that's then going to allow the EU to export its regulatory model. I mean, Eric, how do you see the discussion in uh, in EU circles around how this regulatory space should develop? I think it's very difficult. I think it's very difficult. And that's precisely what Kelly or Kellyanne pointed out to. I mean, these are... These are markets that are politically super sensitive because the regulatory policies are touching upon the sovereignty of a country. And so they want to have that right to regulate and they don't want to commit that at the multilateral level, at least not to a great extent. So I think also I agree with Chris. I mean, ideally, there should be something done at the WTO, but um, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult for trade negotiators and it's going to be difficult for countries as such to align with each other precisely because, well, you not only have these three models, but you have so many other different interests that also needs to come together. So, I mean, and because you talk about these difficult markets that are so politically sensitive, it's something we saw like, you know, in the 90s as well with services. Like transport services, enormously difficult to liberalize, to agree upon. I mean, the WTO has not moved on these other sort of more traditional kind of services. And so if digital services are even more difficult to to get an agreement on, I mean, as much as I think at the transatlantic level, as well as at the multilateral level, I think also it's also a little bit like lowering expectations, I would say. I mean, there is there is a clear benefit. Huh? There is a clear benefit to, for example, get data right between the Atlantic, because our research at eSight also shows that that really creates, what is it, like 4 to 5% extra digital services trade, right? So if they get like the privacy shield number two or 2.0 whatsoever. So there is a clear, clear benefit. And you might say, oh, this 4% is not so much, well, that's the size of, what is it, Belgium, for example, if you put that into context. So it is it is important, but it is just very difficult. And another reason I think why, I mean, we should also lower a little bit the expectations is that if you look at the past, for example, I mean, goods trade has always been revolved around the three markets, the three big markets too. I mean, not to say that, therefore, you should keep things as they are. No, absolutely not. I mean, there's a job to do to get these frictions away. But it's not an entirely abnormal thing to have, like, you know, things organized around three big markets, right? So that's what we've seen with global value chains, for example, supply chain trade as well in the past. I mean, for sure, you'd like to cooperate with each other. You would like to get, you know, the the trade cost and the relative trade cost vis-a-vis another market be as low as possible. But again, I mean, then I would fall back in that same story of, yeah, you touch upon the sovereignty, you touch upon like difficult issues that a regulator, a national regulator wants to control. And that is just very difficult to negotiate, I think, at the international level. Unless you would bring in national regulators in the WTO story, for example. I mean, there could be one solution, but... It's going to be difficult. Yeah. Kellyanne, are there any low-hanging fruit that we can look towards to kind of give this a more optimistic spin? Well, I I was about to throw some cold water on the idea of negotiating these provisions at the WTO. I mean, we are looking at, you know, the most ambitious thing happening right now is potentially concluding a 20-year negotiation on fish subsidies. And even then, no negotiator thinks that's going to happen this year. So the negotiating function at the WTO, unfortunately, is broken. And whether it is irreparably broken or not is yet to be seen. But when you are talking about things, as as Eric and Chris and you and I have all discussed, are so politically sensitive as digital provisions that invoke sovereignty, it invokes privacy, it invokes a philosophy of how you run an economy, the WTO is not the place to do it. Um, I I do think bilateral forums are are a good opportunity to have those discussions. Um, There has even been talk in the United States of potentially doing a digital trade negotiation with the broader Indo-Pacific. So there are discussions happening. The G7 is also a great place, just given it's a, a limited number of economies 
economies who are all democracies and have more of a similar philosophy on the, the way their economy should be organized. Um, but, you know, it, things in sort of the emerging technology space on AI, quantum computing, biotechnology, those are all new issues. And they're very exciting issues for a lot of countries. So I, I think that to the extent there is low-hanging fruit, it is on new technology that has yet to be regulated. So we are not so entrenched ourselves in, in specific national positions. So that's where I would go with this conversation. And Chris, in, in the context of the UK's new post-Brexit trade policy, digital also pops up quite regularly. We've talked a lot about, a, a little bit about the UK-US dialogue, but the UK signed a trade agreement with Japan that also contains a a digital chapter uh, in CPTPP, the Pacific Trade Club that the UK wants to join. There is uh, there is a tension for the digital dimension. Is is the UK in that respect kind of ahead of the curve, trying to see where op- new opportunities lie and actually being able to sign agreements on digital trade? Yeah, so I, th- I think that the the most innovative region in the world right now is is the ASEAN region. I think we've got quite a bit of catching up to do in the rest of the world around legal harmonisation and standardisation. And I, I do think there is low hanging fruit. I think we, you know, as the private sector, we've got to do a better job. I think of helping governments decouple the politics from the practicalities of trade. We can easily digitise. All of the documentation that relates to trade, that's four billion documents that are floating around the system at any given time. All of that can be removed without any, there's no political disagreement around that. You know, most governments, it's just low hanging fruit, high value return. Let's just get on with that while we figure out these sort of longer term, slightly more complex values based conversations around the the philosophy and politics of, of the digital economy. But let's get on with the job. Let's not, you know, get bogged down. But I think is that businesses, we've got to come forward with solutions. We can solve some of these solutions and they are solvable. But if we all stand back as the private sector, then that's not actually very helpful to governments because quite often policymakers just don't understand how businesses are operating, the reality of where businesses are. And, and so we've got to come and explain what we need to have happen, when we need to have happen, and, and how that can actually deliver benefit for everybody. It's, it's, it's not a, a win-lose. It's, it should be a win-win. Hmm. And perhaps also for you, Chris, but I'm also curious what Kellyanne thinks. It's like, what happens if we don't reach an agreement? When, when, when things just go the way they are going right now, we have uh, three main blocks. And in between those three main blocks, there's a group of middle countries, sort of middle powers, that try to manage in between these blocks. What, what does that do to to international trade what kind of inefficiencies are we looking at is that a, is that problematic or is that simply then you know a reality that businesses will have to will have to cope with and and what does the consumer notice if we end up in that type of fragmentation no, I, I mean, I clearly, as you might have understood, I look at more from an economic perspective. I mean, first to follow up on Chris' comments, I mean, yes, there is a lot like in the Asia Pacific that is going on, right? So New Zealand, Singapore, Chile, right? DIPA, Australia, Singapore, DEA. There's a lot of innovative stuff on artificial intelligence and the UK might also want to join like CTPP and that was before sort of the most sort of uh, progressive uh, trade agreement in digital trade. But to a large extent, these markets remain small. And so that is in itself not an issue. But if you want to have the big bang, if you want to have, you know, that big sort of shot, you need to have a big market. And these are the three big markets out there. Why? Because these these three blocks are going to outsource a lot of services activities in the future. That's where the technology is going to be. That's where the companies are going to be that need all these input supplies from all these smaller countries around it, right? So that's where you want to be. And so you want to have these three blocks on board, basically. The smaller countries that are doing their stuff, it's very good. They're going to do their innovative stuff because they then sort of, you know, try to balance in between, right? So to try to regulate or solve these regulatory issues for businesses in between. And hopefully they can sort of try to come to some kind of, agreement against a cost because, you know, they need to adhere to two different systems to provide their services. But I mean, then, I mean, that's, that's good. And potentially that, you know, that, that sort of amplifies that sort of agreements, what they find as the CTPP has done. 
But again, I mean, it's only beneficial up to the fact that you hit again a big market, I would say. So that, 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 that will be my take on it. And what, what will the consumer notice if, uh, if this fragmentation persists? Chris? Well, I think the consumers are already feeling the pain. You know, if you buy an, a Huawei phone in the UK, it no longer talks to Google uh, or any of the US tech, tech kind of companies. So you're kind of presented with a really good piece of kit that's one of the best in the market that doesn't actually really function very well just because companies have had to make choices based on the politics. You know, if, if you're in Africa, you're having to choose much more, make much more fundamental choices actually for consumers about what networks, what governance and all sorts of other decisions that, you know, have really fundamental kind of consequences. And, and ultimately, what does it mean? It means life gets more complicated, it gets more costly, more pricey, and consumers start to make their own choices in all of it. Mm-hmm. You know, no, nobody wins. So we can bumble along as we're bumbling along at the moment. And there is a risk of that happening. Yeah. But all that will, that will do, it's not sustainable in the longer term because we'll just become more of a fractured kind of digital economy than we already are. In my view, like I say, you know, there are wins. There is harmonization of ideas. And, and even across where you would think there's political divergence, there isn't. There's political convergence around some of the kind of core basics. I would argue that we need to focus where we can get wins rather than focus where we can't. I mean, just to give you an example, in the UK... You know, we've moved beyond the deeper agreements, for instance, on just the basics of legal harmonization. We're now talking about the sort of the fundamentals of the building blocks of digital tr- digital economy. And how do we push those through trade corridors worldwide? But, but in that conversation, you have to kind of separate, you know, digital assets and cryptocurrencies, all this AI and future tech and say that's coming. We get it, but we don't need to worry about it just at this second. What we need to worry about right now is digitization of trade documentation, legal harmonization, the fundamentals, legal entity identification, that the, the basics that we need to get in place, the building blocks. And then we can come back to the sort of slightly more complicated, longer term solutions down the road. But you've got to go through that conversation, decouple it all, because there's a tendency from a policy point of view to dump the whole thing in one bucket. And then it becomes an impossibility to solve when actually it is solvable if you just sort of decouple it all a bit. Right. Well, the, the, the reason I mentioned consumers, and then I'll get to you, Kellyanne, is, is that consumers are also voters. And consumers have expectations about where they give their money to, which companies they support. And they also expect that those companies to abide by a set of values. And it seems also listening to this conversation that digital services trade particularly is very sensitive to that, to that value set, that there are real data privacy and data retention concerns. Just like consumers want digital providers to be taxed fairly. And so I think more than any other sector, we're seeing digital services trade being, being also used for, in a way, consumer mobilization. I don't know if that's, if that's a fair representation, uh, um, uh, Kellyanne. Yeah, I I think it's an interesting way to look at it from the consumer's perspective as well. I I do think it's going to get more complicated and and potentially this fracturing of um, the digital trade uh, ecosystem could devolve into an all-out tariff war between countries. I mean, that's what we saw happen with the United States and China. The whole exercise started as an economic exercise because U.S. companies were being forced to share their technology subject to data localization requirements and, and all sorts of of um, uh, harms and anti-competitive policies, a lot of which were focused on this digital space. You know, the threat is also there with Europe. If we aren't able to eventually achieve an outcome that removes the digital services taxes, the U.S. administration politically and domestically, because of U.S. voters and consumers and and, and businesses, is going to have little choice but to impose tariffs. Tariffs seem to be, at least in the economic space, one of the only tools that we have. Um, So, you know, there there are greater consequences to the lack of convergence. But, you know, the same token, you know, one of the reasons we were never able to achieve a U.S.-EU free trade agreement, I think, is because things weren't broken enough, right? Things were working okay. We have a number of trade irritants, but there doesn't seem to be a, a lot of motivation for either party to sort of get out of its entrenched position when it comes to regulatory and other issues to make that deal. So in some case, the more optimistic way is that it gets worse and worse and worse until it eventually gets 
better because companies, consumers, voters, and whomever else are going to force governments to take some action to resolve some of the, the fracturing of the system. And in, in a way, that's what happened uh, several years ago when Safe Harbor was thrown out and we, we had to spend quite a big effort on getting Privacy Shield up, up, up and running between the US and the EU, even though that's now also under review. Is this um, sort of the glass half full interpretation of, of where we are in digital regulation? Guys, uh, Eric, Chris, any final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm very optimistic. Like, I think I think there are some pretty challenging big questions, um, particularly around the sort of more political aspects of the digital economy. But I think that needs dialogue. It needs what we need. I keep always want to hear these conversations. I keep coming back to the same thought that we need some good political leadership. We need politicians who are ab- mature enough and able enough to sit around the table like grown ups and actually have the proper conversation. I have to say, I think we're in a much better place this year than we have been in the last three or four years, but there's still a lot of work to do. Um, and, and that's really fundamental because we can't solve some of these issues this year, next year. It's, it's longer term stuff. But I'm, I'm really optimistic that I, I think 2021 is an absolute breakthrough year when it comes to digital trade. We're, we're now covering ground that we've all been talking about for the last 10 years and, and we've made an enormous breakthrough, particularly led by G7, I have to say, uh, on legal reform. But that will that is, to put it in context, the single biggest transformational project in global trade right now. If you imagine that 250 billion pounds of savings in the UK multiplied up across the, it dwarfs any bilateral deal, any regional deal. It's huge. So, you know, I think the economics alone and I think the point Kelly made there was really interesting. I think businesses are now really starting to apply pressure uh, because we're already a long way behind in terms of regulatory frameworks and, ref- and, li- and laws and, and standards and, and, and so on. You know, the system is not working. It's broken and it has been broken for a long time. But because of the pressure of COVID and going digital and accelerating the use of digitization and technologies, it's forcing the conversation to happen. But I I think there's low-hanging fruit where we all agree, let's get on with the job and then let's sit down as mature adults and have the bigger conversations as a global community, not in pockets and, you know, two round the table, not three round the table. Let's get get the big parties around the table. Great. Eric, any closing closing thoughts on this? Um, Yeah, fine. Again, a middle ground. I mean, I could also, I mean, I could join Chris and say, well, something needs to be done with the low-hanging fruit. I mean, there are sort of, Smaller things, aside from data localization, you know, that you can handle administrative burdens and, you know, a lot of red tape. But I think on the bigger issues, I would join the club of Kellyanne. I mean, I think it's, 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 it's difficult. And um, I think the, also from a consumer perspective, the way things are going to move is when the relative cost vis-a-vis an external actor, i.e. China, is going to be higher. And then you will see... The countries are saying, oh, hang on a minute, maybe we should do a transatlantic and hang on, maybe there are benefits because otherwise we have to pay for them in the next sort of 20, 30 years. And as long as, as soon as that sort of descends, you know, then you will, you have a mobilization. I mean, which is nothing else than how the EU has been constructed in a way, right? So by external external threats, basically. I mean, it, it, by so many things that happens because there is something happening around you and you would like to have it fixed. Yeah, and, and, and Kellyanne, I mean, if we... Follow your logic about that things aren't perhaps broken enough. Are we are we moving in that that direction when uh, sort of like in the 1990s where you couldn't use your your cell phone in in both Europe and the United States and things became technology became incompatible? Is that the point which we need to reach before before <laughs> we finally get it? Well, I have uh, found myself the pessimist in the room an awful lot lately. (laughs) Maybe it's a decade of being a U.S. trade negotiator. I've become quite cynical in my world outlook. Um, You know, I I, I think for some things, I I also think that industry is quite creative in coming up with solutions too, right? So governments shouldn't be relied on to fix all of these solutions. I I don't think that they will ever keep up with the speed of innovation and commerce. So in some respect, I think that industry will start to develop its own standards 
standards through creative licensing deals and, and commercial contracts and, and the like. But in terms of governments actually getting together and, as Chris suggested, getting everyone around a table in a multilateral setting, I think that's an awful long ways away. And I, I don't think things, unfortunately, are, are broken enough. But as more of commerce transitions to the digital economy, as it begins to occupy more space, um, as it gains in importance in terms of the national security and values-based interests, it's going to become the conversation in the room when you're talking about doing trade. And at that point, something's got to give. So I, I do think things will likely break a bit before they get better. But um, that doesn't mean that um, you know we shouldn't stop trying, because I think we should. Yeah. Um, Chris? Yeah, just to Kelly's point, I mean, I think I, I, I'm sort of in kind of agreeing with, with a lot of this. But I, I mean, I'm a pragmatist as well as an optimist. So I, I think we have to use the forum's as best we can and go for the wins where we get the wins. I think that's that's the key for me. The chances of it happening through the WTO, it, it, that looks like a tough space right now. But, you know, there are there are wins to be had, even if it takes a couple of years. But it won't be necessarily what everybody wants. But through the G7, there may well be a, a more proactive. Through the UK, US, you know, channel, I think there's there's opportunities. You know, let's go for the go for the channels and be pragmatic and go for the wins where we can get the wins. And then, you know, over the course of the next sort of four or five, ten years, you know, the politics will will start to change anyway. And then maybe, you know, we'll be in a world where it all becomes a little bit easier. But standing still for the next 10 years, when I'm kind of presented with that thought, I just look at where we've been for the last 10 years in digital trade when, you know, the system just doesn't work. Mm. And it, it, we can't bring yeah. the economy back up on its feet unless we get some action. And and luckily, all of us agree, as Kellyanne said, that this is the conversation over the over the years ahead in terms of which direction global trade is moving. Unfortunately, this is all that we have time for today. Kellyanne, Eric, Chris, thank you very much for your time and for sharing your insights uh, with me. Now, if you are interested in the other expert conversations that I've had as a part of the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, please go to our website at www.aig.co.uk slash GTS. The AIG Global Trade Series 2021 is an international partnership between AIG, the Georgetown Law Institute of International Economic Law, Chatham House, the Klingendal Institute, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, the Jacques Delors Institute, and the International Chamber of Commerce UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is a knowledge partner of the series. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade series, and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2021 or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.